Take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John. We're back in this little letter at the end of your New Testament, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. And this morning we come to um, a passage of Scripture that the song that we just sang is the perfect setup for this passage. And we're going to see that as we read it here, that this holy God, this holy God with whom there is no darkness at all, that we see that at the beginning of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. In 1 John we see that this holy God is a loving God. This holy God that is unlike everything else in the universe is a God who loves and he's a God who redeems. He's a God who calls his own his children. And this morning we're going to be looking at that. Notice the title of the message, God's True Children abide in Christ. If you would, I'd like to ask you to circle the word abide up there in the title. That is a key word for us this morning. We're going to see that a few different places as we go. Um, but this is the great, beautiful picture of 1 John. Notice here in your first line under the box, 1 John is all about true, genuine, saving faith. True, genuine, saving faith. Faith that saves you. And this is opposed to or versus fake, self-deceived religion. And so what we see John is pushing back against is false religion. And I'm not talking about false religion in the name of other gods. I'm talking about false religion, listen, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. You see, you can even get the name of Jesus right, but get the true doctrine, and listen to this, not just the true doctrine of Christ, the true application of that doctrine, the practice, wrong. And so that's what John is concerned about. John sees that the gospel has gone through. He's in his 90s at this point. He's writing. This is one of the last letters that he would write, one of the last things that he would do as the last standing eyewitness who had seen Jesus when he was in his ministry on the earth before he ascended to the Father. And so John is writing saying, look, there are problems in the church. There are people who claim the name of Christ and they do not live for Christ. They come to your gatherings. They sometimes even teach, but they're frauds. They do not know God. And they have followers that in the same vein of their folly, people that sit in the congregation that claim the name of Christ that do not know Christ. And so this is a message that was not only important for the first century when it was written, but this is a message that is important for the 21st century where we find ourselves today. So notice with me in 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 28 through chapter 3 and verse 3. And so this is where we see one of those places where the chapter division really doesn't divide the thought so very much. Um, so we just, we take this whole passage as a, as a uh, morsel together. Look with me in verse 28. And now, so he's transitioning, and now little children abide in him 
so that when he appears, circle the word appears, please, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. Underline at his coming. You're going to see that this is a theme in these five verses. So, children, abide in him so that when he appears, you have confidence and you don't shrink back in shame at his coming. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see, John is very concerned about who is born of him, who is not. Look at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is is that it did not know Him. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, circle that word appear again. You see this is a theme here. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. In verse 3, let's all read verse 3 out loud together. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so we see that John is very, very concerned that there is a genuine faith that is not only believed but that is lived. And that there is a great difference between those who claim Christ and do their own thing versus those who claim Christ and live in him. So genuine faith is God's true children. And that's that's what we see here is he's saying that this is the picture of true saving faith. So there's a key word that is here. We've looked at the word appear, but I want us to also look at the word abide because it's also in other places, not only of 1 John, but other um, writings by John. In fact, all five books that John writes have this idea of remaining with Christ, have this great emphasis of remaining with Christ. So the word abide that you have up there in verse 28 is very important. The word abide means to remain with. Fill that in, to remain with, to to, notice the next one, to dwell with. And that's an even more intimate idea. It's not just that you're there, but you're living there. Um, this is the idea of, you know, we, we've often, you are back a hundred years ago, um, you might ask someone, where is your abode? Where is your abode? What does that mean? Where's your house? Where's your home? Where do you sleep at night? Where do you live with your family? Where do you have dinner? I mean, that's, that's part of the idea. Where's your abode? And so here, this is the idea when we're talking about, this is, this is Jesus calling us to live with him to stay with him. And notice this, it's the opposite of leaving. It's the opposite of abandoning. 
And John talks a lot about that. In fact, if you would go back and look at the last two messages, we were just seeing in chapter 2 that there's this great concern of those who are in the church with Christ and then they leave. And I've shared with you my heartbreak over the fact that I grew up in this church. And I can look through the pictorial directories and I can see family after family after family. And there are some who here 20, 30, 40 years later are faithfully walking with God. And then there's others that they're just gone. And maybe you get to know them a little bit and you hear their story and, and somehow, some way, they just they seem to have completely walked away from any real faith in Jesus. And John said one of the ways that you know a failed faith is that they no longer gather with God's people. You see, in America we have this idea, oh, as long as you're right with God, that's good. You know, I can can worship God out of my boat, or I worship God on the golf course, you know, know, and praise the Lord, you know. I mean, you know, oh, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Um, We have all these ideas about this very individualistic faith. But if you are honest and just read what the Old Testament says, or just remember back to what you were taught about the Old Testament, you you keep hearing that God's people were a big deal to him. And it was the whole lot of them. And it wasn't just individuals. I know that there are stories in the Old Testament, accounts in the Old Testament, of the individuals, but they're always in the context of his people. And then we come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, it is just, it is the whole picture is God and his people. So when one leaves his people, we start to be very concerned because John would say, John does say, they went out from us to show that they were not of us. And so this is a, these are very sobering words to us. These are, these are John's words about saying, I don't want you to be self-deceived. I don't want you on that day to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. I want you to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So this is John's great concern for the church. And when we see this in verse 28, look up there in verse 28, he says, and now little children, abide in him. He's saying, stay with him. Don't leave him for the things of the world. Don't leave him in your spiritual failure. Don't leave him loving this present age. Look in verse 28, he says, now little children, Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Number one, I want you to see this and fill this in. God's true children will have confidence when Christ returns because they have abided with him. Abided in him. Or they have, fill it in, stayed with him. You see, God says that when Jesus comes again, you don't have to shrink away in fear and think, oh no, you can say, oh yes. 
And that's what we see in John's concern here. And that's what true children of God are going to do. And we're going to see this more clearly. Notice this under here, underneath this, letter A. Salvation is solely the work and the gift of God. Without question, the only way that we can be saved is through him. We just heard two testimonies from Bart and Maria saying that they just really wanted to be very clear about that in their own understanding, in their own mind, that it is by grace we have been saved. It's not as a result of works. There's nothing that we can do to gain our salvation. It is a gift of God, even faith being the gift of God. So letter A, salvation is solely the work and gift of God, but it is, fill it in, proved by our abiding in Christ. So if we are saved, we are going to abide in Him. You see, letter B is this, we abide in Him through faith, obedience, and yes, self-sacrifice. We're going to see that this is the life of Christ. This is what Jesus did. He is obedient to the Father. And he trusts the Father's plan. And he lays down his life. And so as he stayed in the Father, we are called to stay in the Son and the Father because the two are one. Look at John chapter 15. I will never forget when I finally started to realize that, that I needed to just really pay attention to all I had been taught of the gospel. And as a high schooler, I, in my senior year in high school, I started just sensing God's conviction on my life about the things in my life that were not right. And uh, I began to just see how true the word of God was and how true the gospel was. I believed it in my, in my head, but I hadn't really lived it in my heart as I needed to. And I, I just remember that God was doing a work in me. God's doing a work in some of you right now. He's, he's doing it. Maybe even this message is the beginning of that once again. But some of you, it's been months or it's been years that God's been doing a work in you. Well, it was at that point that I came across John 15. And I remember, I remember the week that I began reading this and I, and I just saw what Jesus was calling us to with our lives, our personal faith, our genuine faith. Look with me in John chapter 15 and verse 1. The fact that Jesus is calling to, for us as his disciples, to abide in him, to remain with him. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The vine dresser means the one who comes and prunes, cares for the vines, takes care of all that is there. And so here's Jesus on the earth fulfilling the Father's plan. And so here he is, and he says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit... He prunes it so that it will hurt and bleed and eventually die. Is that what it says? Is that why he prunes it? No. He prunes it that it may what? So God is at work in sanctifying us. God is at work in, in changing us. He's, he's pruning us if we are really his. There's a cutting that goes on. There's a testing that goes on. Notice here. Every branch that does 
bear fruit. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now he says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I have the Bible that I had been given when I was 16, that when all of this started to become more real to me when I was 17, I have the Bible where I underlined that next phrase. And it just hit me. I started to realize He says at the end of verse 5, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, I had kind of given up on the Christian life because I thought when God was handing out holiness, I didn't get any. I just wasn't able to overcome my tongue, able to overcome my actions, able to overcome my thoughts, my heart, my impulses. And what I started to realize is that God didn't call me to overcome those things. God called me to stand under the the great fountain of his grace and the great fountain of his strength and to let him do it in me. And there's a vast difference between those things. Apart from him, I can do nothing. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me... He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now this is, this is being so in tune with God that you're asking the things that God would have you ask. And he says, there's no limit to what I can and will do. Look at verse 8. By this, is my, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And then look what I've underlined. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Let's read verse 11 out loud. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Isn't that beautiful? You see, he's calling us to abide in him, not because he just wants to make life hard, not just because he wants to you know, really see if we, if we really believe and all of those things, so much as it is, is that he has good things for us. That he's calling us to trust in him that our joy may be full. Some people are so afraid of what God is going to take away. My friend, if you could just see what God will give, you will not worry about the things that he will take away. Because his gifts are so much greater than the foolish poison that he takes out of our hands. So we see this great calling of faith and obedience and self-sacrifice, and we see it again in Mark chapter 8. So if we wanted to say John 15 is this beautiful calling to abide with him and to stay with him, John 8 
is this super huge reality check on what that means. John 8 is a very, very challenging word to us. Notice here what it's talking about. It's talking about what does it really mean to have total commitment. And just remember that as we look at this, that Jesus fulfilled all of this. Jesus went to the cross as he abided with the Father. Look with me in verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And the crowd, excuse me, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That means let him go get his electric chair. That means let him go get his lethal injection. This was the place of execution. This was the place of death and shame. So he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Verse 37, or 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when what? When he comes. In the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Don't turn it over. Don't turn it over. I hear you. Look at this. Look at letter B. We abide with him through faith, obedience, and self-sacrifice. Jesus lovingly calls us to abide with him, gently calls us to stay with him. And then in Mark, Jesus, Jesus is speaking in Mark, and Jesus is showing us that this will be tested in a fallen world. In a fallen world, you will pay a price. As I paid a price for you, you will pay a price for me. And through all of this, there will be a glorious reward. So number one up there we see is God's true Christians, true children, will have confidence when Christ returns because they have abided or stayed with him. You can safely turn it over. Notice the next slide. You see, true Christians, we see in this, and we're still under point one, true Christians will grow to eagerly await Christ's return. True Christians will grow to eagerly await Christ's return. Look up there at verse 28 in the top of your page. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. We may have confidence when he comes. That's, we've just seen that that's possible. When you stay with him, you're not going to shrink back when he comes. So we can eagerly await his coming. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 28. Notice what it says. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So he, the first time, he, this is talking in 9 verse 28, he's talking about he comes the first time to bear our sins. And then look, notice this, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly awaiting for him. You see, his true children are looking forward to his return. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to, look what it says, renounce ungodliness. That means, that means decry it. That means absolutely say this is wrong. To renounce ungodliness and world, worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And why are we doing all of that? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. And what's our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that top line up there, true Christians will grow to eagerly await Christ's return, not dread it. And I'm grieved when I hear Christians speak of the return of Christ with fear and dread. That's been a popular thought in the last 60, 70 years. A couple of movies came out in the 70s that showed the ominous return of Christ and, and showed all of the persecution and all of the trouble. And it, and it very often in our love for comfort in America, our love for freedom and liberty and all of that. We couldn't imagine how this could happen in America. And golly, I don't like to think about that. Whereas the rest of the world, our brothers and our sisters in China, our brothers and our sisters under totalitarian regimes around the world that have been persecuted all their heritage for the, their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers were persecuted. They're like, what are you talking about? That's par for the course as a Christian. While Americans are just freaking out at the thought that they could be persecuted for Jesus' name. And, and caused to be extremely fearful. Now, I'm not saying it's not a scary thing when our brothers and our sisters in the Middle East and Central Asia and other places of the world are persecuted. It, it can be a very hard and difficult thing. We've seen it. We have friends. We have friends that have died because of their faith in Jesus. But I, I can also tell you that it is a, a beautiful thing when you see Christians saying, what awaits me far outweighs anything that these people can do to me. I believe the gospel. I believe in heaven. I believe in the eternal reward. I believe in a new body. I believe in the approval of the Son. And I await that. You see, these have listened to Jesus' words that say, do not fear those that when they've killed the body, they've done all that they can do. Instead, fear the one that after he's killed you can cast you into hell. Be right with him, not them. And this is, this is an important thing. So, so Christians, we, we really need to have a change in our thoughts about this. I'm calling Sheridan Hills to have a change in our thoughts. Wherever we've dreaded the return of Christ, wherever we've looked at these events and thought of them as bad, may we begin to see the grander picture of the Father's glory. May we begin to see the grander picture of the temporary suffering versus the eternal reward. Because that will get you through the trouble. 
when these passages that say, this is only for a little while. I mean, the, the Apostle Paul would even say this. Here, he was living a life of being chased from town to town, stoned, left for dead, whipped, beaten, thrown in jail. And you know what he said about all of this? He called them these light, momentary afflictions. They're light, momentary afflictions. They're not to be compared with the weight of glory that the Father has for us. And so we, need, we often need a perspective change. We often need to have things in proper perspective. And that's what John is doing. That's what John does um, throughout this. So notice that that Titus 2 passage is so beautiful. I want to read it again. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That means all nations, all ethnos, all people groups. Anybody on the earth can be saved. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And this present age is passing away. That's the idea. Verse 13, because we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So notice this, though. The other side of what we see in 1 John is that false believers, because that's what the big contrast is here, true Christians, true believers versus false believers, false believers will live like the world, they'll talk like the world, they'll be entertained like the world, their sexuality will be like the world, their, their values will be like the world. You, you won't be able to tell the difference between them and the world. False believers will live like the world, they will desert the Savior, that they're going to leave him. That's what they do. They're ashamed of him. That's what, part of what we see in verse 28 um, and in other passages. And they will ultimately cower in fear at his coming. And they have good reason to because they've heard the gospel and then left it. That is beyond the pale of what will bring judgment. And so the beautiful picture of what God has for us is stay with Christ and you will not be afraid at his coming. Number two, I want you to notice this, and we see this in verse 29. God's true children practice righteousness as they abide in Christ. God's true children practice righteousness as they abide in Christ. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, the contrast to that would be everyone who does not practice righteousness is not born of him, which John says multiple other times in this very letter. And we see the Apostle Paul, we see Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you don't keep my commandments, you do not love me. You do not know me. So we see this great picture of application of our faith in those who practice righteousness as they abide in Christ. Again, notice this under number two. Again, see John 15, the whole idea of abiding. See John or Mark chapter 8, the idea of commitment. And what we've just looked at, Titus chapter 2, look at the idea of holiness. 
And why is all this the case? Look back up at verse 29. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. That is, is coming off of Leviticus chapter 20 and Leviticus chapter 21 where we see that God tells his people to be holy because they are holy. Look at verse 26. It says right there in Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy. Can you underline that? For I, the Lord, am holy. Why are we to be holy? Because God's holy. And we have, and have separated you from the peoples for that you should be mine. Well, that is carried right on through into the New Testament. That does not just apply to God's nation in the Old Testament that all, and God's people in the Old Testament. That applies to God's people in the New Testament. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. It's quoted again from the Old Testament. We are to be holy because he is holy. So we are to practice righteousness. And let, let me tell you, there are some people um, who like to go to church. They like to kind of be involved with things here. But they also really like to have another foot over in the world. And they kind of see themselves as being able to skate between the two. Well, I like some of the things from church life, and I like some of the things from worldly life. I like some of the things from church life. I like some of the things from worldly life. And what we begin to see is that that's not the way it works with God. God says you're either for me or you're against me. God says that you're either with me or you're opposed to me. And the way that that is seen is that we become holy as he is holy. We come to find that this is the great place of joy and fulfillment because number three shows us the great motivation of it all. God's true children are, fill it in, are loved by God. Would you look up there in chapter 3 and verse 1? Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. In fact, let's read chapter 3, verse 1, just that first sentence, all right? Here we go. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, a few years ago, there was a song written for children originally, and then it kind of spilled over into congregations. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. How many of you remember that song? Some of you are going, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called the sons of God. What a great thing to teach our children. And then we'd sing it in rounds. And then we'd sing it, you know, somebody stand on your head and sing it. I, I don't know. We, we would do all kinds of things with that little chorus. But it was just the first part of chapter 3, verse 1. And it's a beautiful statement. You see, part of what John is doing is he's exclaiming how amazing God's love is. Look what he says in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. It's not just that he saves us, it's that he truly makes us his own. So number three, notice there, God's true children are loved by God and rejected by the world as they abide 
in Christ. Now, there's a lot of times where we would love to say God's two children are loved by God as they abide um, in Christ. And we kind of leave off the and rejected by the world. But notice what it says in verse 1. In the middle part of the verse, it says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was saying to those who would become followers of his, because that was really at the beginning of his ministry, he said, you need to understand that if you follow me, you are going to be persecuted. You need to understand that if you're really named with me, this world is going to reject you. And if they are going to come after me, which they are, they're going to nail me to a cross, what are they going to do to you? Now, there's some people that they don't like that idea of Christianity, and so, so they're very weak when it comes to the difficulties that the world comes, and they are often surprised. And that's why Peter would write, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is among you. Understand that God is at work, that he is at work, and he's at work in sustaining you and proving you and in sanctifying you. But we can rejoice in the true love of God. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, one of the glorious chapters of all the Bible. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are some of my favorite chapters of the Bible. But look what it says in verse 8 and verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? Live. So you don't just let your body take over and mandate how you live your life. He says, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you by the Spirit. And by the way, underline that, by the Spirit. You can't do it yourself. You have to depend upon God. This is faith. This is trusting in God. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that's not as 1970s band from Sweden. That is, that is the word daddy. He's saying that we have this intimate relationship with him. We're not adopted by someone that we do not know. We're adopted by someone who invites us into the most intimate of relationships of love and care, that of a good father, a perfect father. In verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. That means you're, you're going to inherit. And heirs of God, and notice this, he takes it even up another notch. In fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we see this tremendous love from God, this adopting love from God, this generous um, 
leaving an inheritance for us of righteousness and goodness and eternal life, it's a total identification with him. It is a great love. So notice this, in a world whose heart is growing increasingly cold, and by the way, the world's heart is growing increasingly cold. And it's happening at the major geopolitical levels more and more. And it's even happening right down here at the interpersonal levels. I mean, I believe that even all the fear that is brought about from the pandemic, uh, the barrier of the masks, and I'm not, this isn't a statement about validity or non-validity of masks. I'm just saying that there are, there are things that are happening to continue to individualize every person from other people. Uh, Social media does that. As much as it's supposed to connect us, it actually isolates us. Um, And then we we see all of our wealth and we we have our car. We're not riding on buses. We're not not so much so. We're we're not typically interacting with more people. The porches that we've built are on the back of the house behind a fence. They're no longer on the front of the house with the neighborhood. I mean, as as all of the things are changing in our society of wealth very rapidly over the last 70 or 80, maybe 100 years, our love is growing cold. And that's exactly what the Scripture says would happen. Men's love will grow cold toward the return of Christ. And so there's a, there's a harshness. We, we have a member of our church that a family member two nights ago was restoring a house in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And someone came in and at gunpoint said, give me your wallet, give me your jewelry, give me everything that you have, and then shot them in the leg and in the shoulder. They survived, but left them for dead in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Sometimes you're tempted to, i got to get out of South Florida, this place is crazy. I'll go to Tennessee. <laughs> well, in Tennessee. Notice this. In a world whose heart is growing increasingly cold, we remember that God's Word makes it clear that it is because of His great love for us that we are saved by Christ. So when we think about our own faith, when we walk through the 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 life that God has given us right here in South Florida. We're the people that can be sitting in our car in the midst of the hostility of the world and thinking, there's a God of love. He's motivated by love. He calls himself love. And he saves us through his love. And maybe that guy who just cut me off is going to be saved. Because he can't be saved if he did that. (laughs) But maybe, maybe he'll be the next one. So I need to pray for him. You know, we... We, we, we need to be reminded that what motivates all of God's salvation is his love. Why would we say that? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave his only son. What motivated him giving his only son? His love. His great love. So that's what verse 1 is really saying. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And the world doesn't understand it. The last statement down there on the bottom of the page, not only are we spared, so we're, we're saved, not only are we spared, but we're also, I made up a word, aired. 
Um, that's not the proper tense of that. Um, but, it, but it works. Notice what it says. Not only are we spared, but we are aired. He, he doesn't just save us from death, but he comes and he, he gives us everything. He gives us everything that he gives his son. That's what it says. We're fellow, fill it in. He makes us fellow heirs with Christ. He gives us eternal life and righteousness and goodness and all of his love. This is a gospel of God's great and glorious grace. Finally, look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Look at 2 and 3 on the back of the page there. Verse 2. Beloved. You see, we're, belo- we're loved. And so that means the, these are the people that, boy, these, these are the, this is just the, the brothers and the sisters who've received God's love. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And we will be, excuse me, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, what verse 2 is saying is this, is that for those who are truly his children, when he shows up, we are going to be filled in. God's true children will be totally transformed to abide with Christ And not just to abide with Christ, but to abide with Christ face to face forever. So the the total transformation, you talk about a makeover, this is far beyond any makeover that you've ever seen. Uh, Glamour shots in the mall has no, cannot hold a candle to this. This is the human body and this is the human spirit, the human mind without sin and all of the consequences of sin. That's what's going to happen in verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We haven't even seen it yet. And in this verse, we have this beautiful tension between two things. He's saying, look what he says in verse 2. Beloved, we are children of God, or we are God's children what? Now, can you circle the word now? Because that's right now we're God's children. But there's this tension of not just what is the case now, but there's something that is yet to come. Now, for those of you who have been here over the last few years, you remember when we did a worldview study, we looked at this idea, and this is a key concept in Christian theology that you need to understand. We call it the concept of the already The concept of the already, that is salvation in Christ. And we're going to complete it in just a minute. But notice this, there's the already. And the already is the now. For those that are in this life right now in the midst of a fallen world. And this is talking about our salvation in Christ now. That he has saved us, he has given us eternal life. I want you to notice these passages that are underneath this. And this is so important. Just yesterday, listen to this. Um, I, I just, I'm so privileged to spend time with different people during the, during the week. And um, I, I'm just blessed that I was with Mike and Vicki Montero yesterday. And Mike and I went over John chapter 1 and verse 12. Look what it says. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God. Now, that's, that's to everyone who has believed in him and received in him. And do you know that Mike Montero prayed to receive Christ yesterday in the church office? Praise God. Is that right, Mike? He said, and he said, why would I, why would I not receive him? Why would I not receive him? Notice this. In Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, you see, we're saved. We're no longer condemned. Look at 2 Corinthians 6, 2. For he has said, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Look at the last part. Let's read it out loud. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Maybe that's the case for you. Maybe you're hearing the gospel. Today is the day for you to be, to be saved. This is God's salvation now. I love Acts 3.19. Repent now, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what God does. He saves us now, this is the already. We've already, for those who are in Christ, we've already been saved. But then there's also the not yet. That means there's still a part of our salvation that is waiting. Yes, we are saved and forgiven of our sins, but we've not been yet made complete in this picture of being totally sanctified. We've been justified, but we are still for God's glory struggling in faith in this life. That brings God glory. Now, some of you don't like that. Why would God do that? Well, I don't know. When you get to heaven, if you're saved, you can ask him about that. But he is glorified as we struggle. So the not yet is still here, but it's coming. And that's what we see in verse 2. Look up there in verse 2 in the box on the page. Beloved, we are God's children now... And what will, we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the not yet is this. It's when he appears. Fill that in. We're still waiting on him to appear. And this, you see, it's not our salvation, but it's our restoration to his image without sin because we were made in his image but then sin gets brought into the equation and so there's sin and death and disease and sickness and hardship and sorrow but when he appears all that's going to be over and our restoration without sin will be before us i love first corinthians chapter 15 and this maybe maybe because we've set it up here you're going to understand this like you've never understood it before i hope so look what the, the apostle paul is writing to the corinthians and he's writing to them about this great thing this great resurrection that is going to happen and it's going to happen when christ comes look at verse 51 behold you can see the excitement here the apostle paul says behold i tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep. That means we're not all going to die. Some people are going to be alive when Jesus comes back. We, will, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So whether you've died or whether you're alive, when he comes back, we're going to be changed. Look at verse 52. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound 
and the dead will be raised imperishable. That means Christians who have died, believe it. I mean, this is, this is just beyond our, if he can create you the first time, he can recreate you the second time. So whether you were cremated, whether you were lost at sea, whether, whatever happened to your body, whether the worms came and ate it, here's the picture. Notice what he says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That means they will never perish again. And we shall be changed. So those who are alive are going to be changed. Same thing, verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on what? Immortality. Say amen. Amen. That's great. This is eternal life. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the victory is salvation. The victory is rescue. In verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So there's the already of our salvation, but then there is also the not yet, that when he appears, we're going to be like him. And all of his promises are going to be delivered in a way that we cannot possibly yet imagine. So look back up at the box at the top of the page. I just want you to see this. Look at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is salvation. This is salvation in Christ. And so I would say to you, do you need to be made pure? Just come believe in him. Come and rest, run to him. Come and cast yourself upon him. Let his gospel be true. Let it change your language. Let it change your values. Let it change what you're living for. Let it change your outlook. Because you see, a view of eternity changes everything. Key questions. Number one, if you heard an earth-shaking blast of a trumpet and realized that the Lord Jesus Christ was returning this afternoon, like, like now... What might your immediate thoughts be? How do you think you would feel? So I'm asking you about your mind, what you believe, what your thoughts would be, and I'm asking you about your your heart, your emotions. What is down in your reactions? 
Would you be afraid? Would there be dread? Would you immediately think of the porn that you looked at last night? Would you immediately think of the broken relationship that you've been holding onto? Would you immediately think of sin or would you be thinking of the Savior? I think you might say, many of you would say, I think I, think I might be thinking of sin. I might, I might be, maybe a, maybe a little unsure. Let me tell you, that's why you need to study the true gospel. That's why you need to study what this word really says about God. And then, that's why you and I need to live it. Because if we know what he has said, and we know what his salvation has truly been, and then we're living it, this word says that we can have confidence at his appearing, not fear. I hope you'll think about this sermon. I hope you'll think about this question all week long and that you will begin praying, Lord, do a new work in my heart about your return and my life. Number two. What does your life, or how does your life compare to John 15, Mark 8, and Titus 2? That's page 1, page 1, and page 2. So I want you to be able to go back and look at those. Those are on page 1. John is on page 1. Mark is on page 1. Titus is page 2. I think you need to spend some time. Go back and read those passages. Go back and say, is this my life? Am I abiding in Christ? Am I following Christ, denying self, taking up my cross? Am I renouncing ungodly things? Or do I let them entertain me? Or do I participate in them? Titus 2. John's concerned about whether or not you're really saved. And that's what this is asking. How about this one, number three? This is a good one to be thinking about. Christ's return is imminent. That means right around the corner. That means at any moment. That's the word imminent. Christ's return is imminent. It can be at any moment. How can you have confidence when he appears? How can you have confidence when he appears? What needs to happen in your understanding and in your living that you may have confidence when he appears? Amen? Let's stand together for prayer.